0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 14th edition of the Big Footy Bombers podcast for season 2021. I am again your host, Sponsor34, and I am joined this evening by Sporno for Pyros. Have I that, said that correctly, mate? That's
1: correct. Porno for just,
0: Pyros. There you go. I'm just making sure because last time uh, we had you on, Jemu, Jemu was the the host. Uh, he the the B team, as as I like to think of him.
1: He was all across my name, rhyming with the band Porno for Pyros. So.
0: So he wasn't completely useless, is what you're saying, which is which is <laughs> I'm sure he'll uh, be pleased to hear when he listens to this. Now we're also joined by another person who's become a fairly regular on this
2: show, and that's Kiptastic. How are you, mate? Thanks for having me, Bronson, and Sporno. Welcome to the A team. This is the serious stuff here. This is we don't we don't stuff around. This is the serious, hard-hitting podcast that you would have come to, would have come to expect. I hope
1: that's good fun. Looking forward to tonight, fellas.
2: Yeah. So so we will jump
0: straight in, and and we'll touch touch on uh, the game against Sydney on the weekend. Now, Kipper, I saw the first three quarters. I did miss the last quarter, uh, so I, I would probably missed things at the point end, which is it does appear like we may have faded a little bit in the last quarter. But for the first three quarters, I was actually fairly pleased with the effort. We, we, we certainly ran with them and they are going to be a finals team. So to, to be able to run with the finals team as well as we did for me is, is a pleasing sign. And I thought it was probably our best game for a few weeks. I, I thought we'd been down and, and lacking energy. And I think we, we certainly brought the energy that we saw earlier in the season uh, to the
2: game against Sydney on the weekend. Absolutely, it's it's the best game since the West Coast game for mine. Even though we, we lost, just that um, Rutten spoke a lot about playing the game that we want to play, and I think for the most part we did that. I did see at the start Sydney were trying to play that same game style that North and GWS played against us, but the fact that we were able to get in front and then Sydney did get back in front at the start of the third quarter, but by you know we, we sort of went goal for goal for them for the rest of the game, and um, I think that shows that we really committed to. The game style as much as possible there obviously are things lacking and that that comes from being a young team but i don't think people should be disappointed with the effort obviously there are a few execution areas and as you said sydney Sydney are a really good side they're, they're charging through threatening top four i think it's a really good result for where we're at but just a few small changes need to be made before we we do start taking up to teams like sydney what did you think spawner
1: yeah a um, bit like you kip i must admit i was a bit worried going into the match Because, you know, Sydney's been red hot the last few weeks, just like they were at the start of the year. So to go toe-to-toe with them was really pleasing. And I'd be lying if I said I saw every second of the match, but uh, what I saw was like, gee, they're looking good. And, you know, it was really pleasant to see because I think we've all been a bit disheartened by the last few weeks and this week they really uh stepped up
0: yes but I, I do just want to touch on something kip did say though and that was sydney sort of a, approached the game the same way that you know north melbourne and gws did in, in that chip chip style and, and i think i posted i know three or four times i think i got a few likes about the, the chip 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 we just we didn't plan for it or, or if we planned for it we didn't execute it again now i have said before that maybe it's, it's it comes down to rutton and, and it was pointed out well Rutten wouldn't have said to the players Don't man up. But Rutten surely needs to have a better game plan in the players' minds because the players themselves don't go out there expecting to let the swans just chip, chip, chip all out the field like they did. It's a breakdown on both sides, I think. I think it's the coach and also the players not executing properly, and maybe just a little bit of lack of communication between a new coach and a young playing group towards the back end of the
2: season? I think we see with the Rutten game style, the willingness to see the opposition's back half, sort of push them push them wide, let them do that chip-to-chip, chip, chip, and then use our um, interceptors like your Ridleys and, and Laverde's played a really good role intercepting Redmond and the like to get the ball back and then push forward Use using Nick Hyde, um speed through the middle, and then good disposal by um, Zach Merritt to get the ball forward, possibly because our forward line at the moment isn't very lead-oriented. And so it's very it becomes if we go slow, it becomes very stagnant. We're trying to some way play some sort of slingshot effort. I mean, there's problems with the with the front half pressure because obviously Tipper Moody is down. Selling being back is, is a big in for that and helping with that. And I think Dylan Clark played a bit of that role as well. And I think that's one reason why Sydney didn't get on top as much with that game style as GWS did last week. There's a bit, bit of a harder edge from our players, um, but it, it does seem to be a, a genuine tactic to let them out that way and sometimes if the players aren't fully concentrating, um, it just seems very easy for, for teams to move all the way from back to forward. I don't know if there's stats on this, but I would say that we've probably conceded the most goals from kick-ins without it out, one of our players touching the ball.
1: Yeah, I'd say that's um, been a a bit of a frustrating thing for all of us fans watching at home to see sides doing that chipping around. And it seems to pay off really well against Essendon, or it has the last few weeks. But uh, I I noticed that it's been apparently a, a trend across the league. I think Collingwood had over 150 marks, uncontested marks on the weekend, what I saw of Geelong and North Melbourne. And very similar sort of thing, where Geelong were just chip, chip, chipping. So I've heard people sort of say it might be a tactic to try and overcome the the stand-on-the-mark technique. So uh, And maybe we haven't adapted to that just yet.
0: Yeah, and, and it may very well be a, a tactic to avoid the the man-on-the-mark rule. I, I think maybe the man-on-the-mark rule, it, it had a pretty big impact early on, but I feel like teams have sort of adjusted now and are setting their zones a little bit better and I think maybe the umpires have been a little bit more lenient on it than we expected, or certainly more lenient than what was advertised by the AFL. The AFL were adamant that you, know, you took half a step, you'd be gone. But I think we've seen that there is still a little bit of creeping going on, not not a great deal. And, and the other thing is with that standing on the mark is is players have got a little bit smarter too. So you can actually stand anywhere within... I think it's it's so where, where the player takes the mark. You can stand five metres to the left, five metres to the right five meters behind and you've sort of got like almost a mini semi-circle set up and i think players are now standing more in board in that semi they're not actually standing the mark this this they're standing more in board and probably a little bit further back which probably does have the same effect as creeping around on the mark because if you're already there that quick movement in board which is what the afl was hoping to see isn't it's not as easy is easy to uh, execute, but I think the most pleasing thing for me was was that we saw the return of, of Darcy Parish to what I actually think will be his All Australian form, and, and look, we'll probably move away from the Sydney game because while it was a better performance, it was a loss. So I don't want to dwell on it too much for our listeners. So, so keep. I'll start. I'll start with you, mate. Darcy Parish, I think, is probably our biggest lock for All-Australian this year. Jared Healy, I think, said earlier in the season that, that he was an absolute lock. All he had to do was prove he could beat a tag. Now, I don't know if he has proven he could beat a tag, but that's still only been one or two down games. For the rest of the year, he's been sensational. And I would be stunned if he's not at least on the bench for the All-Australian side
2: this year. He's definitely got the most hype. I think he's still... is he. I'm not sure if he's still the leading clearance player in the game. I don't know if Libertore's taken that back after a couple of quiet weeks, but to be one of the top two or three clearance players in the game and to have improved his, his kicking so much, um, it's just outstanding. I think he's really... It can be hard for that that sort of first-timer player. You know, they, they're really making their name for themselves to get on. Often that, that's an easy person to cut in the All-Australian look, but I think that given his high profile and the support that he's getting from members of the media, um, I think there's definitely an All-Australian spot for him. I think you're yeah, underselling Zach Merritt, though. Um, I think they're both... Zach, Zach Merritt is a victim of his own standards. He's been he's he's probably had his best year. I think if you look at his game yesterday, that was the that was a complete game, and he hasn't been as impacted by a tag as Darcy has. Um, I think if Darcy's a lock for um, all Australian, I, I can't see Merritt being much further behind. Sportos, anyway, is what do you what do you think? Do you think Darcy's had the better year, or is Merritt a bit better?
1: I guess Darcy's had it in the big matches is where he's been. He's sort of been on Broadway where he's had his big matches. So Anzac Day, Dreamtime, the Farmers' Match, where he all got best on ground in all three of those. So I was there thinking, oh, gee, he's really tracking for All-Australian. But, you know, the, the positions for midfield get pretty pretty crammed I and mean, you've got to fit uh, Bontempelli in there. You've, you'll have to fit probably Petrarca in there. Sam Walsh has been having a crack over the season. So it's going to be pretty tight for some of those midfield positions. So, you know, if people start to look at, oh, just his last two weeks and they go, oh, he's, he's been a bit off the last two weeks, for Parrish, that might go against him slightly. But I I would think either Parrish or Merritt, one of them's definitely got to make it onto the bench. But it's a bit of a boys' club sometimes, the All-Australians selections. And we've seen in the past where people who have a big name might get in on reputation. And I think, like you sort of said, Parrish might make the squad but may not make uh, the final team just due to... Uh, football politics
0: well he might actually slide into that uh that half forward flank role because the, as we know the all Australian side certainly doesn't uh mind sticking the midfielders into into the pockets and and the, and the flanks if, if there's no room in in on the ball so I think he should still make the team, and I do think you're right, though, Kip. I think Zach Merritt suffers from what I am now labelling the Jordan Ridley disease in that he is a victim of his own excellence. It's just something that we've come to expect, and I think uh, it was, it was said, one of the commentators said on the weekend that there was a bit of, I suppose, there was, there was a bit of negativity around Zach Merritt's disposal a couple of years ago. It, it was a lot of, oh, he just gets these cheap kicks, but I, I certainly don't think he does those Cheap kicks anymore. It's it's one of those ones that uh he seems to be just able to hit a target and be a little bit more aggressive by foot, which is something that we we certainly love to see. And it's funny that you mentioned Sporno blokes that that get into the All Australian side uh, because of because of height. Because I for one uh am still absolutely filthy that Matthew Matthew Pavlich <laughs> got the All Australian full back back in the early 2000s over Dustin Fletcher despite the fact he actually never played full back. He played centre half back for the year and they just decided to shove him into the the last line and, and move poor old Fletch out of the way.
1: I think zackey's going a bit better in the coaches' awards as well than than Darce, not not a huge amount, probably one best on ground.
2: I just want to bring up uh, AMT, um, Anthony mcdonald winning. I think five five weeks ago, um, I think he was a lock in the forward pocket, that small forward position. Do either of you think these last five weeks are going to cost him his first All-Australian berth, or do you think he's done enough in the first 14 rounds of the season to justify that spot?
0: No, he's absolutely not going to get it now. He, you're right. He he was he was on fire early in the year, and he would have been one of the absolute monties to get it. But with three games to go, he's going to end up probably going to kick. Well, and I say only, but he's probably only getting that that mid thirties total for goals. Uh, and I just don't see how they're going to slot him in especially when you consider, as what I've just said before, midfielders do find their ways into those positions. If if anyone in our forward line is going to get it, um, and and Sporno, feel free to to jump in and disagree, but I think Jake String is probably the the forward from Essendon that would slot into the All-Australian side this year.
1: Well... I'm an unabashed Jake Stringer fan and I think out of the three, I think he's almost got to be the, the one, if one of the three had to make it. Jake Stringer on the weekend, even though he is mostly in his in the midfield doing some amazing clearance work, he kicks goals and, you know, he has had a... A season. Well, he's had a better season than the Dusty, if you ask me. And the commentators love to rave about Dusty, as we all know. So I would think Jake Stringer's definitely got to be in the mix there for a spot on the half-forward flank, even though that's not a, his primary position anymore. And it's it's just, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, a few years ago, back to Tipper, what's the goal sneak from Geelong who he had about the first six weeks off because he was suspended? by Steve Johnson. Steve Johnson, of course. Stevie J. He got suspended. Ended and didn't play for the first six weeks, and still made the All-Australian side. But Tipp has definitely dropped off a cliff, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, but I've got my hopes on Jakey Stringer getting a go.
2: I think it was that—that that was the um, 2007. Uh, Geelong Premiership year. I think Stevie J there. I think all Australian selectors that year you could have just picked the Geelong first two, 22 and I think people would have been happy with that one. But on Jake String, I mean, if you look at his form since, I think I've, I talked about this last time I was on, but his form since the Hawthorne game has been outstanding. He's he's doing that role that we want him to do. He had nine clearances on the weekend, equal most on the ground. And he just, he, he was one of those ones that was when, when we had a goal kicked against us, it was it was our clearance work that was giving us the opportunity to respond and he was the driving force behind that. I don't know whether he's the mid part of his year and um, missing some games would cost him in that, but the fact that he's coming home so strong and such a high profile um, and having been an All-Australian in the past, um, I think he may sneak in on the half forward line. Um, and he actually would be a perfect fit for, for a half forward because he, he, he plays forward and he rotates through the midfield, um, unlike some of the other midfielders that get put there, as he said.
0: Just on Stevie J's All-Australian, it was 2007, you are right, but he did kick 41 goals in, in 17 games and, and uh, also managed to average just close to 19 touches a game, which is obviously a lot more than tipper. So I I I, I, get, I take your point, Spawner, but I think, I think Stevie J's season was, was miles better than now. Than, uh, unfortunately, what AMT is going to end up delivering this year. It is interesting, though, the other bloke and and I did mention his name before when we were talking about Zach Merritt being a victim of his own hype. And the other one from Essendon that's that's still a real red hot chance has to be Jordan Ridley. I mean, he he's just gone very about his work very quietly, very very non plus each week and, and just just plays with such confidence and silk for a bloke his age. I mean, I don't know who else is gonna be in the running down there. He he doesn't provide that that running exciting dash off the halfback line like your your Nick Hines and your Adam Sards, but he just has something that's just hard to replicate. And and I think he he certainly would again be in the mix for for one of the back six positions. Um he will certainly make the squad I would have thought. And, and it, it's sort of amusing to me that we've probably got four blokes that should make the squad in, in stringer, Parrish, Merritt and Ridley, even though we're not going to finish in the top eight. And and all four of them probably have a genuine claim on a spot the side. And, and even though I, I don't think he should be there, Anthony McDonald tipperwoody is another player that's probably got a, a claims for a, at least a spot in the squad. Um, so it's pretty exciting, I think, that we've had such good individual seasons from some players this year. But, yeah, I mean, what do you guys think about Ridley? Should he be in the side this
2: year? He, he's been as consistent as last year, just not as much of a standout because it's, you know, he did it last year and he's doing the same thing again. I think we, teams, you often tend to overrate your own your own players. There's only there's only 40 spots. And, you know, when we're saying, oh, there's, there's four definites from a team that's that's struggling to make the eight, I think that's a bit, can be a bit, a bit of a fantasy. But there's no doubt he's playing as good a football as last year when he wasn't in that 40. I don't think there would be any debate about whether he deserved to be there if he was picked. But I think it also sort of does a re- bit reflect on our season and, and sort of where we're at that we do have a, the, a lot of these individual high performers, but... As a whole, we're carrying a fair fair bit of a bottom end and that, that's costing us in games. I mean, if you look at the look at the stats from, from last week, um, if you look at the players, over 20 disposals, there's only four wrestling players compared to nine Sydney players. we just too much is being carried by too few. Maybe they'll get that individual recognition, but it, it's holding us back um, from that team success, success that they all want.
1: Yeah, I think the fact that we've had a few guys like Laverde and Mason Redman step up again this year, has sort of taken a bit of the spotlight off uh, Ridley because his season, as far as stats and everything goes, matches up to last year. So he should definitely be in the squad. But it's sort of interesting, Carlton's in a similar position to us. They've won eight games, but they've got Sam Walsh, who should be in All-Australian. They've got the full forward, who should be All-Australian. Uh Weed are in the full back, we should have the full back position. So they're probably a bit similar to us. They've had a few of their stars really perform and have great years. And then... It's the depth players that you sort of mentioned there, Kip, that maybe have let both sides down.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I'd say our depth players have let us down as such, but I think one of the big things we've found this year is our depth players are probably learning roles that they haven't been asked to play before, especially especially the the ones you sort of mentioned there in La Verde and James Stewart's another one that comes to mind, and even Redmond. I mean, Redmond was probably behind Connor McKenna and Adam Sard in that dashing run off the half-back line, and, and then... They tried him on a wing, but did he really play that well on the wing? I'm not sure. I think he's found his role in the halfback. So I think you're right in saying that the role players probably haven't played as consistently well as we'd hope in in their roles at times. But, yeah, I just think that's because they're learning how to play this game style under trucks, certainly from our point of view. I mean... Oh, Let's be honest. Fuck Carlton. Who cares about them really, <laughs> especially on this podcast? But I'm honestly not sure what Carlton's been like. I mean, I I know there's there's certain posters in our board that love Carlton and think that they're um the next big thing. I'm certainly not one of those because I do look at their list and think there's a lot of
1: a lot of junk still to be trimmed from it. I might have been it a bit would... harsh there on our role players because I mean, you know, they have done a pretty good job this year. So you make a good point that you know some of those guys like Redmond have stepped up where Connor. Connor McKenna were. So, yeah, I take your point there, Bons.
0: The other thing I just want to mention quickly about the role players is, is something something of a trend I've probably noticed on the board. And, and Kip, tell me if you think I'm being a little pedantic here or or, and, or maybe imagining it. But James Stewart made a couple of errors on the game against Sydney and all of a sudden it was, well, James Stewart's not the future. James Stewart this. We need to replace Stewart. We need, a couple of errors in in one game does not undo the fantastic work that James Stewart has done this year. I mean, he's learned a new role and has played it exceptionally well for his first time at AFL level. And it sort of disappoints me a little bit with some of our posters when a player does one or two things poorly, and all of a sudden it becomes a well, they're not the future. We need to replace them. They're rubbish. Is that something that you've noticed on our board, or or, or am I reading uh, uh, too much into into a few comments that I saw on the weekend?
2: I think I think it's. Every board, every, Essendon board is as bad as this and any, as any other board, any other forum where you, you look at it, people posting on Essendon. There's always people ready to stick the boot in to certain players. Will Snelling cops it all the time, even though he's been fantastic. Every time Tom Cutlass is um, selected or Marty Gleeson is selected, there's heaps of people posting about how, how crappy he is and he should never be near an AFL side. It's really just if people are really quickly to make a judgment on players and then when they see something that matches their judgment, they're really quick to post about how their judgment is right. And you don't see those people when those players play well. As soon as Aaron Francis, you know, muffed, muffed a kick, there's there's an explosion of, of people, you know, oh, he can never work as a forward. This is, this is terrible. What's he doing there? Um, same same as Stewart, as you point out, Stewart's played some fantastic games in the back line. Aaron Francis has been off for four weeks for mental health. He, he came back um switched roles so he obviously been trained as a defender all year trained as a defender the last couple of years and was asked to do the team thing and play a forwards game and he did some i thought he did some really good things some of his lead-up marks on the wing were very impressive and i think there's something to work with at that i think people are too quick to overlook what could be and, and what the potential positives are and really quick to write off write off a lot of players and you know you know, you, you go into some of the threads about our list management, our list strategy. Um some of the some of the delisting lists are, are more than half the team. You know, you, you can't you can't do that. And, the, and people have value even if they're not the Zach Merritt's or the Darcy Parish superstars. You know, you need players to do certain things. You need players to do do the hard things. You need a player to sit on a wing for a whole game, even though the ball might not come out that that side the whole game. And, you know, they end up with, with ten disposals. And you're like, well, what a rubbish game! Well, they're playing their role. They're, they're holding they're holding the space. So, look, knee-jerk reactions are a, a pretty standard response from a lot of people when it comes to football. We're obviously really passionate. We want our sides to do well. But I think there's a there's real scope for people to be a bit more circumspect about how they talk about players, particularly on a lot of the social medias where they can access that. Um, seeing what we know about mental health, seeing what's happening with some of the things in the Olympics. I think that sort of attitude doesn't really help anyone. It doesn't, and it doesn't make somewhere like the board, a really good place to to discuss things if people have such a hard line against certain players.
1: Yeah, and you've got to remember, Stewart's probably playing against the best, you know, probably the second, first or second best forward from the opposition side each week. And the way opposition sides transfer the ball from our forward line to their forward line is always under the pump. So I'm willing to cut the guy a fair bit of slack.
0: Now, there has been a bit of uh, non-Essner news that I do want to touch on this week because, geez, it made me laugh because, fuck me, Dad, who did not see the Alistair Clarkson, Sam Mitchell, Hawthorne, Love Triangle exploding (laughs) into a million million pieces and falling apart quicker than uh, after Luke Skywalker manages to fire off into the Death Star? I mean, Jesus Christ, how many examples did Hawthorne need to see before realising that a coaching handover like that just does not work. We saw it with Malthouse and Buckley. We've seen it ourselves with Worsfold of Rutton. I mean, Paul Ruse and Goodwin, okay, that might have possibly worked, but Goodwin's still there. There's still a lot of Demon's fans out there who don't think Goodwin's a great coach and that their list is underperforming. Coaching changeovers, what were Hawthorne thinking, Kip? I mean... It was great pleasure for us, but fuck, that's just one of the dumbest ideas I've seen is to get rid of the bloke who's coached them to four flags on the off chance that Sam Mitchell might be the coaching messiah they're looking for.
2: It's a battle of egos. I mean, Jeff Kennett has one of the biggest egos of all time. Um, he's never, he's obviously never played at the highest level. He's no, never coached at the highest level, but he obviously thinks that his opinion about who should be coached um, outweighs all that and outweighs all that, all that history. Um, and it's clear that he... Has wanted Clarkson gone for a long time. Obviously doesn't approve of the way Clarkson coaches or, or likes him and, and wants his, his control on the club. And then obviously they got spooked by the potential to lose Sam Mitch. It's, it's, it's the Buckley situation all over again. So I think Buckley was going to coach North Melbourne. I think that was the sort of the rumour that he was going to go there. And Eddie obviously panicked because he, he can't possibly have a favourite son coaching anywhere else. Um, so he panicked and did, did the multi-house transfer. And The same things pretty much happened here. Um, you have the same president with a big ego. You have the very successful coach who the players love. And I think we saw with the result that Hawthorne pulled out on the weekend, the players obviously um, really like to play for Clarkson um, for the favourite son. And well, I think we can only hope that it goes as well for Hawthorne as it did for Collingwood Sporting.
1: I think your analysis there was spot on, Kip. I couldn't have said it better myself. And I'm with Bontz on this. I think, you know, it's one of the funniest things I've seen in a long time. And may we get many, many, many laughs out of this for years to come because it was, yeah, just a joy to watch. I mean, if you're at any club and you had a choice between Clarkson and Sam Mitchell, we all know which one coach you're picking. So, you know, every time a coach has left in the last five, uh, 10, 10, 15 years, everyone's gone. The first person you call is Clarkson. And, well, Hawthorne have um, uh, jumped at ghosts and, or well, jumped at shadows or something. And it's just hilarious to watch. And I'm I'm getting a lot of amusement out of it.
2: Absolutely. But I think on a, on a serious note, co- coaches do have a use-by-date. I think there's, there's been a lot of, I've seen a lot of talk about how we're very quick to get rid of coaches as they age. If you look at other sports, um, particularly in the US, they do have a lot of older coaches with that experience and that that's important. But I guess how long does a record like Clarkson's buy you? It's, it's six years since his last premiership. The club the club has gone backwards. Do you pull that trigger like we did with Sheeds? History shown that that hasn't exactly been successful for us. Would Essendon's situation be different if we resigned? re-signed Sheets for 3 years. I don't I don't know. So I hope I hope this backfires in Hawthorne's face and he goes to car class and goes to somewhere like Gold Coast and turns them into a superpower and beats Hawthorne in many um, finals for example, but yeah, it's just an interesting question about when the right time to move on a coach is.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned Sheets because our history over the last 20 years for for handing over coaches is not great let's let's per, let's be honest i mean the most successful handover i think we've had since sheets took over from barry davis in the start of 1981 was was when Gary o'donnell handed over back to Sheed's in 2006 after his his one game as, as coach back then a little fun fact i'm not sure if either of you remember Gary o'donnell coaching us to a draw against carlton in 2006 when when sheets was ill um, i'm pretty
2: sure i was i'm pretty sure i was at that game and yeah Draws kissing why like kissing his sister but gone.
0: That was the <laughs> that was the game that that Fletcher chased down. Garner,
1: oh, that was, was great. That yeah, the um, little fella from Carlton, little forward. Yep.
0: Yeah, but having said that, yeah, I mean the Sheedy, yeah, people might go, oh, well, the Sheedy one wasn't that messy. Well, it kind of was because two thousand and seven was was this year we we let him go and. We let him go just before the, the Adelaide game in round 17, and we were actually still fighting for a, for a top eight spot at that stage. And we were in contention against against Adelaide, who were also fighting for a spot. We actually turned up, beat Adelaide in, in round 17. And then, unfortunately, after that, only won one game for a year. And you do have to kind of think that the players at the time were probably going, well, Sheeds isn't going to be here. We've cost our, our coach his job. I mean, have we been good enough this year? Well, clearly not, so therefore... The effort sort of sort of left, and especially with Shees back in two thousand and seven, because he was actually red hot favourite to get that Melbourne job for a very long time after Neil Danaher left before Melbourne went sideways and, and gave it to Dean Bailey, who well, I actually don't think it was a bad choice, but that's that's for another time, another podcast. So, so I think that was a, a fairly messy handover from, from our point of view, and then the Matthew Knights era ended. In one of the worst worst ways possible, with the fact that we we dumped him and then brought in a very inexperienced James Hurd, who was mentored by a, a, a Mark Thompson, whose whose interests lay elsewhere by that stage, um, and then obviously the Hurd to Thompson back to Hurd did not end well. The the end of Hurd was not great. World's fault of Rutton was pretty messy. I mean. Yes, the football club, even though I am very much enjoying laughing in Hawthorne at the moment, we don't have a great record, do we, in recent times, Sporno, the end of coaches' reigns at our club?
1: No, it's it's been a bit Richmond-like, unfortunately. But I think Kip made an, an interesting point there that coaches do have a used-by date. And, you know, maybe Clarkson was... I, I think where Clarkson made his mistake was maybe when they didn't make finals in 2017, he didn't realise then that, hey... He needed to go back to the draft then, but he tried to top up with players still, uh, Chad Wingard, Jago Amira, the the Sydney uh, GWS rejects. So I think that's probably where he made his mistake. If he had done some changes then, maybe gone through a mini rebuild or something, maybe they would have um, been in a better position now. But they they gave up a lot of draft currency at that time. And I think, as, as we've seen, you have a bad draft, a couple of bad drafts, Four or five years ago, and it uh, starts to bear fruit half a dozen years later, and it can be hard to get out of that funk.
2: Yeah, it reminds, reminds me of sort of that mid to late 2000s when we were picking up, you know, Scott Campariali and, and Justin Murphy and Matthew Allen, and, you know, a few, a few guys just to sort of top off the list when, you know, you, they, and obviously it, it was self inflicted through the salary cap, inability to manage that, losing your carouselers and your bum fields and the like. Um, but it, it it did sort of was reminiscent of that, you know, a successful coach got after a successful period, trying to relive the glory, thinking thinking that the coaching would be enough without the cattle. I think that's sort of where Clarkson Clarkson was at. He, you know, his 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 coaching ability would outweigh the skill of the team, and I think you know, you do you do sort of see that a bit. You know, they, Hawthorne would pull out these amazing victories against, against top teams, and you could see the imprint of Clarkson on it, but he also would have been a driving force behind the decisions to to trade those draft picks, and in many ways, it probably cost him his longevity in the job. I think sometimes you need humility to know when your club is not going to be able to challenge, and, and be able to, to drop down. I think you know Sydney last year is a good example. They didn't didn't try very hard to win too many games, and they've they've popped straight back up with a few um, handy acquisitions um, to really um, add to their their strong core of talent.
1: Thanks for reminding us of the uh, Camper Reale and Tizantuck years, mate. I think we're all really happy to hear about those years again. <laughs> no, it's. Uh, but you probably saw Geelong do it and he was trying to do something similar. I mean, Geelong's been able to top up, but it's a lot easier to top up when you pick up a danger field and Jeremy Cameron.
0: Yeah, Looks so, so the last thing I just want to touch on coaching before we end for the season, and I'm going all the way back to 2007, and, and, and Kip, I'll, I'll grab your th- thoughts first. Sheets has been on record of saying that he went to Peter Jackson around the 2007 mark early 2007 knowing that James Heard would retire that that if they gave sheeds a new three-year contract that, that, that then Heard would then spend two years I think as an assistant underneath sheeds uh, learn the ropes and then and then he'd take the reins, yeah, around the 2010 2011 mark, that he took it anyway. And, and Sheeds would then fade into the background as, as a director of coaching style, which I think David, I think he was modeling himself in the David Parkin role at Hawthorne at the time. It's a massive slide indoors moment, and I don't want to channel my inner Damien Barrett for it, for the Eston Football Club. But if that had happened, do you think that James Heard would have been a successful coach? I mean, I, I still think James Heard was a good game day tactical coach I I thought he offered a lot of the job I just thought that he had probably a little bit of naivety around the off-field side of things and and as I mean I say naivety we we saw what happened so clearly he was misled but that wouldn't have happened on the sheets I I just don't think that there's just no way that Kevin Sheedy would have let that happen so so do you think James Heard would still be our coach now if the changeover that Sheedy took to Peter Jackson in in early 2007 had eventuated uh, the way that she's planned it out?
2: Not too many coaches last 14 years, even even the good ones. So it's hard to say whether he'd still be our coach now. I think that would be a lot of pressure on a a herd. You know, you go straight out of playing, you stay at the same club and then, and then you go straight into coaching without having, having experienced other setups. So he, he would be an Essendon person and he obviously would have the support of the fans. He wouldn't have, um the fans of the board angling to to get rid of him like a knights would he'd get a lot of leeway um, in terms of in terms of performances a bit like Buckley um, got whether he'd be successful. I think he's a very intelligent man. Um, he obviously gets players to play for him. Uh, I think he'd be very inspirational. Um, it's, hard, it's hard to say how tactically aware um he is he did have some really good moments as a coach tactically just it, it's hard it's hard to say i don't want I don't want to speculate on that. Um, I think we probably did. If, if The other thing is, I guess, is if Heard does come in having um, having apprentice to Sheeds, he's a Sheedy-style coach. He's the only coach he's known. Maybe the club needed a departure from a Sheedy-style coach. There's a lot to say about how Peter Jackson handled the club, um, particularly his unwillingness to open purse strings when, when the club obviously needed in terms of facilities and um, looking to get players. I don't necessarily think it was the wrong decision to not, ex- to, to not extend Sheeds. I think... You make a good point. The time in the season when it was made is probably the wrong time to make that decision. I, I just I just feel that Sheedy's time was probably done, and I think we needed to get away from, needed a break from the Sheedy-style coach, At which Heard, I think, would have been. I mean, he'd have his own individuality to it, but he'd also, you know, he'd have a lot of Sheedy in him.
0: The only thing I would say to you there about the Sheedy coaching is we saw that James Heard was still... A very different style coach to Kevin Sheedy when he came through. He did have that little bit of, I suppose, mischief with the media, but it wasn't as it wasn't as obvious as what Sheeds had. I mean, Heard didn't start talking about marshmallows and Martians, and I can't see Heard ever tying a windsock down like Sheeds did. Uh, against West Coast back in 1991, I believe it was. So while I, I get your point that he would have been only under under Sheedy his entire career, I still think he would have been his own man. And, and I don't think learning from Sheedy was necessarily a bad thing. I mean, again, I take your point that if you've only ever been at one club, you, that's all you know. But Sheedy was very successful. Heard was part of a very successful side at Essendon. So if you only know one club, if they're really a successful club, is that really that bad? Is that is that a problem? I mean, you can argue that Sheedy didn't evolve and, and Heard would, would have not seen that evolution. So, I mean, Heard would have seen that Sheedy struggled to evolve and he probably would have seen what was needed from a modern coaching point of view. So while I take your points, I... I just don't know if I if I place as much
2: importance on that as perhaps you, yourself has. Well, I, get, I guess the counterpoint to what I said and more along of what you said, um, look at look at Bomber Thompson. He spent most of his career under Sheedy. Did did some work as an assistant coach for him. Got the Geelong job, and then is, is one of the most successful coaches of the last twenty years. So, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I guess I'm just a bit pessimistic about um hurt success in the, in that environment
0: yeah at, at the end of the day um it's pure speculation we'll, we'll we'll never know it's just something i thought was was interesting to look back on um as a result of what we saw had come out of hawthorn this week which once again is probably the the, the most pleasure of hawthorn's given me in the past decade so thumbs up to jeff kennett for doing that for us but that will do us for this evening lads we've uh, we've had a great chat this evening so i'd like to thank you both for coming on
2: on tonight uh, thanks thanks for having me. And I'm already putting my hand up to not come on next week because I really don't want to talk about another 10 goal Bulldogs loss.
1: Thanks, Ponce. It's been great fun to be here again. And I uh, love being on here with Kip as well. Cheers.
2: Well,
0: on that rather positive note from Kip, we will call it a, a call it right. Um, if anybody would like to jump on next week because Kip's already decided we're going to lose by 10 goals, feel free to reach out. Um, other than that, ha- have a lovely week, guys. <laughs>